With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife from our Canadian team with a focus on emergency general surgery. I'm Jordan Nada, and I'm here as usual with Dr. Ashley Nadler. Hi Jordan. We usually also have Graham Skelhorn Gross with us, but he's in the middle of moving and getting ready to start his fellowship in trauma and acute care surgery at Harborview. Way to go, Graham. We wanted to congratulate him on completing his general surgery residency and passing his Canadian board exams. Yeah, congrats from me too, Graham. So well-deserved. Uh, we also want to welcome a special guest who's helping us out today. Uh, Dr. Marika Sebeni is here with us. Uh, we've both had the pleasure of working with Marika while uh, she was a general surgery resident of U of T. Um, she just completed her fellowship in trauma and acute care surgery at U of T, so congratulations are in order again, uh, and a master's in QI and patient safety. She's currently working in trauma at Studybrook Health Sciences Center. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Jordan and Ashley. I'm really excited to be here today. And we're super excited to have you with us and uh, sharing your expertise. And we know it'll be a great addition to what we're going to discuss. Thank you. Yes. And uh, we need all the help we can get because we're going through a pretty challenging topic today, talking about operative management of C. difficile colitis. So this is an uncommon clinical scenario, but it's essential for us to be able to manage in the emergency general surgery practice. Only 3 to 4% of patients with C. difficile infection develop its most severe form of fulminant C. diff, but this can be a very rapid progression accompanied by septic shock and multi-organ dysfunction or failure. As such, it has a very high mortality, and it's estimated in studies to be from 34 to 57%. Yes, and the decision-making around if and when surgery is indicated for these patients can be equally challenging. It can be more obvious if patients actually develop toxic megacolon or perforation, but it often seems like we're consulted to see patients too early when surgery isn't needed or too late when they are very unlikely to recover from surgery in a meaningful way or survive. Um, I have an example that I think would illustrate this pretty well. So a 77-year-old male is admitted under medicine for C. diff colitis. He started on Vanco and metronidazole uh, and continues to have frequent bowel movements and cramping. He then becomes hypotensive and is given a 500cc bolus and is transferred to the ICU and started on a small dose of norepinephrine. At that time, it's felt that he's mainly dehydrated, so this treatment is continued. You're consulted two days later when he remains on a similar low dose of vasopressor, but he's had further fluid resuscitation. Thanks. This is a great case to illustrate a common presentation that we get called for. Uh, let's save the rest of the case for now, uh, and we can... Uh, go on given this clinical challenge and discuss two papers that we want to talk about the surgical management of C. difficile to help frame the decision making for this case. The first paper by Ahmed et al. from the Jersey Shore University Medical Center 
in Neptune, New Jersey, was published in the European Journal of Trauma and Emergency Surgery in 2022. It focuses on determining the actual current mortality rates in these patients undergoing surgery and devises a scoring system to help predict this. The second paper is by McKechnie et al. from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. It's a closer home for us, and it was published in the Journal of Gastrointestinal Surgery in 2023. It assesses the outcomes following the choice of surgery for C. diff colitis, namely total abdominal colectomy versus diverting mobiliostomy. These are two great papers to highlight this topic, so let's get into discussing them. So the first article is titled Risk Factors of Surgical Mortality in Patients with Clostridium Difficile Colitis, a Novel Scoring System. It was published by Ahmed et al. in 2022. The primary aim of this study was to further understand the 30-day mortality for patients with fulminant C. diff colitis who underwent colectomies for it and develop a scoring system to predict this mortality and use it at the point of care. They identified patients nationally using the American College of Surgeons uh, NISQIP, so National Surgical Quality Improvement Program data, looking at uh, years 2012 to 2016. They included all patients 18 to 89 years old diagnosed with C. diff who underwent a colectomy for their infection. They used 80% of this data to create the training data, uh, to create and validate their scoring system, and then they used the other 20% of the data to test the model. They identified 525 patients to include in this study. 63 of these patients presented with septic shock, and 34% required mechanical ventilation before surgery. The overall 30-day mortality was 35%. This data clearly shows how high-risk this group of patients are. The indications for surgery were toxic megacolon in 82% and perforation in 18%, so they were also very advanced in the stage of their disease at the time of surgery. While two-thirds had a total abdominal colectomy, which we would consider the surgery of choice, although we'll discuss this in the second article, the remaining patients had a partial colectomy. Yes, it seems like an odd procedure for patients with a pancolonic disease. It makes you wonder if they were done for damage control. Maybe the patients with perforations had that segment removed and were too sick to endure more and had to have a temporary abdominal closure. This could represent a sicker group of patients as well. But they didn't stratify for this, so you, you can only speculate. Yeah, that should be potentially a great study in and of itself, just trying to understand whether or not there's a role of partial colectomy in C. diff. But given the pathophysiology, I suspect not. Uh, but back to this study. Um, we don't want to get into the weeds going through every detail of the methodology, uh, but the methods and approach seem sound. Uh, basically, they did a univariate analysis first comparing patients that survived or died after a colectomy for C. diff colitis. They used the risk factors identified from that in a multivariate analysis, and then used this to create and validate a scoring system. The variables identified on the univariate analysis were age, respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation, presence of septic shock prior to colectomy, comorbidities including COPD, chronic renal failure with dialysis, chronic steroid use and coagulopathy, and ASA classification prior to surgery. Based on the multivariate analysis, the final model included age, ventilator dependency, septic shock, and chronic steroid use. Being of age of 75 or older and these other factors were related to a higher odds of 30-day mortality. Once they had created this scoring model, they tested it with the remaining data and did not find any difference in demographics, clinical characteristics, laboratory findings, and 30-day mortality. They tested the system to compare the predicted to actual mortality and found a linear upward trajectory. Because they had less patients in the high score range, as the score increases, it does slightly overestimate the observed mortality. 
At the highest risk factors, the predicted overall mortality is 84%. This is significantly higher than other scoring systems that we have, even if you take into, the, into account the fact that it's potentially an overestimate. The authors comment on this, referencing the most commonly used surgical risk calculator, the American College of Surgery's NISCIP calculator. If they enter the highest risk factors, similarly to what they found in their study, the risk of mortality was only about 60% in comparison. They suggest this is because the NISQIP calculator is based on procedures and not specific disease conditions. So knowing this, if you're going to use the ACS NISQIP calculator surgery for C. difficile, it would make sense to use the surgeon adjustment of risks option in the calculator to set it to risk significantly higher than estimated. But we actually tried this, and since the risk was already so high, it wouldn't allow us to adjust it higher. So I think we definitely need to know the limitations of any scoring system we use and have to make the adjustment up or down ourselves to have the best risk assessment. I've never actually seen that happen using this risk calculator before, so I'm shocked. Um, also goes to show how high risk these patients can be, and that's before even taking into account the diagnosis. Anyway, this study does a great job assessing and predicting the C. diff-associated surgical mortality. It is the first study to validate a scoring system for this, and it's generalizable because of the source of the data. They show the scoring system in the paper and the predicted mortality associated with each possible score. The only issue I have with this is that the scoring is non-intuitive and it's not readily available in an app or online calculator to use. Yeah, I agree. Uh, they give the following scores for each risk factors. 11 for ventilator use, 6 for steroid use, 13 for septic shock, and 7 for age 75 and older. There's not really any way that anyone's going to know offhand those values. Uh, and since there's not really any calculator available for general use, the best you can do is kind of take a photo of the score and calculate it when it's needed. Um, but I'd probably just use the ACS calculator as we discussed and acknowledge its limitations. And since that's what I do already as well, it kind of makes sense for me. But I would accept, of course, that there's a higher risk of mortality than it indicates. We did find another scoring system online called Atlas that was developed by Miller et al. in Montreal in 2013. However, it was specifically developed to assess mortality with medical and not surgical management of C. difficile. It includes age, antibiotic treatment, leukocytes, albumin, and creatinine. Even at the highest risk factor selected, the predicted mortality is still only 56%, so it likely underestimates the risk. Given that it wasn't developed to include the risks of surgery, this makes sense. So it does seem like this paper scoring system is actually quite well validated and likely the most realistic to use, but unfortunately its ease of use is a bit of a barrier. I think that if you do a lot of emergency general surgery and you see a lot of patients with C. difficulitis, then it's worth having this on hand. But I also recognize the ease of use of the ACS NISQIP calculator over this one. Regardless, I think either tool is helpful for making decisions regarding when to offer surgery over providing futile care, and I think it helps the patient or their family to better understand the risks and make decisions. The context of surgical decision-making leads us to our next article. We talked a bit about the role of colectomy for fulminant C. difficile colitis, but let's look at the alternative surgical options that have been studied. Thanks very good. I'm glad to introduce our next article, while I'm sure it will result in at least one person emailing us with a strong opinion one way or another, and that's total abdominal colectomy versus diverting loop ileostomy with anti-grade colonic lavage for fulminant clostridioides uh, colitis analysis of the National Inpatient Sample 2016 to 2019. That's a mouthful. Uh, we'll try to sum it up uh, and with some of the important findings and limitations here and talk about what that means for decision-making in this complex group. I'm happy to say that this is an interesting, fairly impactful Canadian study. 
but don't worry, that doesn't mean we'll take it easy on them. The aim of the study was to use the National Inpatient Sample, or NIS, to compare those with a total abdominal colectomy versus those patients with a diverting loop ileostomy and antegrade enemas to examine post-operative outcomes and, interestingly, adding a special focus on healthcare resource use. Again, we won't get too buried in the methodology used, but this was a retrospective cohort study looking at patients in NIS from January 2016 to December 2019. They looked at patients with admitting diagnostic codes for C. diff colitis who underwent an operative procedure code for colectomy 886 patients or diverting loop 409 patients. If they had both, they were considered as having a colectomy slash considered a failed ileostomy. Since it only looks at patients with admitting diagnosis of C. diff, there are potentially some patients diagnosed during an unrelated admission uh, or misdiagnosed at admission that are missing here, but that seemed like a relatively reasonable cohort to select to me. The primary outcomes are stated to be both post-operative morbidity, which is a composite of various complications, and mortality. They also looked at secondary outcomes, including individual complications, length of stay in hospital cost, and discharge disposition. There are some notable differences between groups that they identified and attempted to account for. As loop ileostomy patients were younger, less comorbid, and more likely to have minimally invasive surgery, which makes sense given the respective procedures. I think this is a good time to mention a couple of very important limitations of this study. There is no good marker of disease severity considered in the analysis, and all data is limited to the index admission and lacks any follow-up data. But we'll come back to this at the end. That's super important. Thanks for pointing that out. But now let's get into what they found. So although there were several differences in the unadjusted secondary outcomes, the only adjusted outcome found to be significantly different between groups was infectious complications, uh, which actually had an odds ratio of 0.42. That being in this case, it was more common in the diverting ileostomy group. That's really surprising considering the ileostomy group was much more likely to undergo minimally invasive surgery. You would expect fewer infectious complications. I wonder if some of these complications relate to translocation from the colon or inadequate source control. It's hard to say, but certainly raises some eyebrows. Absolutely. And counterintuitively, considering the apparent mortality benefit seen in earlier studies of ileostomy versus colectomy, there was no benefit for either mortality or morbidity in this study. They did, however, find that both cost and length of stay were increased in the ileostomy group, with an adjusted mean difference of about $80,000 in five days. This certainly suggests that there is more of a resource burden in this group, but that brings us back to one of the limitations that I so brilliantly pointed out. Uh, yes, yes, it does. Uh, so it's tough to draw any real conclusions about resource use, of course, based just on the initial hospital stay in these cases. It makes sense, of course, that patients with more aggressive source control will get out of hospital sooner and potentially incur lower costs. Uh, but a colectomy is much more morbid than an ileostomy in most circumstances. And existing research suggests that these patients are much more likely to have a permanent stoma. Yeah, exactly. As we all know, a permanent stoma is quite morbid for some patients and can come along with all sorts of additional complications like admissions for electrolyte and fluid disturbances, nursing placement issues, etc. All costs that are underappreciated during the first admission are important burdens on the lives of our patients. So even if this group gets discharged faster, are they more likely to be readmitted with complications from their stoma? Since they're more likely to keep it forever, that's probably the case. So we certainly have to take that cost factor with a massive grain of salt. And what about the other major limitation that we talked about? The fact that there is no marker accounting for disease severity in the analysis. 
That's one that really stuck out to me. Uh, reasonably, I think that even surgeons inclined to perform ileostomies are going to be much less likely to attempt it versus a colectomy uh, when a patient's extremely sick. Disease severity represents a major unmeasured confounder here that we would expect to make our colectomy group fare worse. The fact that there's no difference in outcome despite this really makes me wonder if the diverting ostomy is truly sufficient for these patients. Yeah, that's been my experience with this too. Overall, when patients are sick enough to warrant surgical treatment, I'd be reluctant to perform a loop ileostomy alone, despite the potential advantages regarding the stoma and minimally invasive surgery. There may be a sweet spot for patients who clearly need an operation but are well enough to safely allow for a less aggressive option, but I suspect that they're in the minority, and I wonder how many of those patients would have improved with medical treatment alone. Mm, for sure. Which I think leaves us all wondering a little bit what exactly the role is for a diverting ostomy. There probably is a place for it, but I'm not sure it would be a major part of the treatment for fulminant C. diff with the current level of evidence. Great discussion, everybody. So that brings us back to our original case. As you'll recall, we had admitted a 77-year-old male with a diagnosis of C. diff. They were in the ICU on vasopressors. Uh, and despite initially that they thought he was under-resuscitated, they don't seem to be improving with fluids and antibiotics after a short period. So how are we going to treat this patient? The challenge often lies in deciding when to intervene with surgery. Generally, we look at a patient's trajectory. If it's worsening and progressing to septic shock, then they likely need an operation before it gets too late in that course. Ideally, you can intervene when they have earlier signs of SIRS or SOFA, such as tachycardia, but before they become hypotensive and require pressors. But starting pressors should often be an indicator to get to the OR before they progress into multi-organ failure and surgery becomes more futile. I totally agree. An important thing to remember is that there are options as far as operative approach, with some important considerations of morbidity and outcomes for both. And we can be informed by our calculated risk from our first paper, which was about 50% for this case using that scoring system. More realistically, though, I think the critical aspect is realizing that this patient needs operative management. And in most circumstances, the best evidence-based approach is going to be a total abdominal colectomy. Absolutely. So we take this patient to the operating room for a laparotomy, and you enter the abdomen, you see some clear fluid and a slightly edematous colon with no perforation. So what do you do now? I've definitely been here before, and it's really important to remember that C. diff is mucosal disease primarily, and the outward appearance of the colon won't reflect the severity of the disease until it has progressed to or nearly close to perforation. Your operative plan shouldn't change based on that appearance. If you've decided the right thing to do is a colectomy, take out that colon. Completely agree. So the patient gets a colectomy, they have a rocky course in the ICU, but eventually survive. And in this case, they're eventually able to undergo a reversal with an ileorectal anastomosis. So good job, everybody. Woohoo! And as always, we're going to wrap up with a game. Today, we're going to play surgery, stoma, serum, I mean antibiotics, I guess, or stool transplant. All right, Ashley, 78-year-old female with C. diff colitis on antibiotics for three days, just started on a presser in ICU. Surgery, stoma, serum, or stool transplant? I would obviously do a full assessment, but in general, if a patient is starting on pressors and they have a C. diff infection that we think is driving it, my choice would be surgery. All right, Ashley, nice answer. Jordan, what do you think? Yeah, you know, of course, it goes without saying that all these patients get a detailed assessment, et cetera, but based on what I know in the STEM 
just like I'm answering on a college exam. I think in this case, this looks like a bad trajectory. They're worsening despite a few days of antibiotics. That patient's getting surgery. Okay. All right. Next case. 56-year-old male with CLL and fed neutropenia with positive C. difficile toxin. Jordan, you go first this time. Yeah, always a tough situation, but, uh, you know, despite the... Um, Despite the immunosuppression, just the positive C. diff toxin in a patient who is otherwise well, as far as I know, uh, not enough information for me to say go to surgery. So I'm saying cautiously serum, so antibiotics, uh, but a low threshold to proceed to surgery. And Ashley? Yes, I agree. These patients are very high risk surgically. Um, it sounds like this patient is well currently, and so it'd be nice to give them the time for their counts to recover. Uh, so I would do antibiotics to start, but have a low threshold to operate. Okay. And what about this case? 67-year-old male with C. difficile in the ICU, maxed out on three pressors with acute renal failure and ventilated. Ashley, what's your take? I would assess the patient and I would have a goals of care conversation as I would in probably all of these situations, but I'm concerned that we may have missed the opportunity to really offer this person a salvageable operation, um, given the fact that they're already in renal failure. Um, they're going to be very high risk, so uh, we would, I would offer surgery uh, discussing the fact that uh, they have a very high risk of mortality. Jordan, would you agree? Well, I'd be remiss in my role as a, as an intensivist to not point out that there really isn't a such thing as maximum vasopressors. But other than that, um, yeah, I think the first thing here is to have a goals of care conversation. But assuming assuming that the you know the is in keeping with the patient's goals to want to be as aggressive as possible, uh, I would proceed with surgery. That being said, I'd be very concerned about the likelihood of a good outcome here. I feel like we've missed the boat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, last case, 82-year-old female with recurrent C. difficile for the third time after multiple antibiotic regimen. Jordan, you take this one first. Yeah, I, I knew there had to be a case like this coming somewhere at the end. So I think this is the circumstance of multiple, fail, multiple failed courses. You're, of course, going to want to evaluate if there's any other reason why these courses have failed. But this is the circumstance where I would certainly consider the possibility of a stool transplant. Great answer, Jordan. What are your thoughts, Ashley? Yeah, I totally agree. This is a situation where a stool transplant would be high up on my list. I would make sure that infectious diseases and gastroenterology are involved. Awesome. Well, that wraps up our exciting game. Thank you very much for your thoughtful answers. Thank you for hosting the game. So Graham usually gets to decide the winner of the game. Today, we want to dedicate this episode and game to him and congratulate him on passing his Canadian General Surgery Board exams and on his fellowship in trauma and acute care surgery that he will be starting at the University of Washington in Seattle. We are so proud of you, Graham. We look forward to having you back for the next episode. Yeah, congrats again from me too. We'd also love to thank Marika for joining us and sharing her expertise in acute care surgery for the episode. And we'll give her the honor of ending the episode. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.